Thank you, guys. So, um, so good to be back with you. If you've joined, thank you. If you've, uh, if you've joined the church in the last three months, you will not have a clue who I am. And uh, you've been paying my salary, you just didn't realize. <laughs> um, so I've, we've had quite a year as a family. Um, so I, a year ago, just a short story. We did a little, I did a little video online, which you can, if you want the, the gory details. But the short story was a, a year ago, my my mum had a stroke, then my uh, dad passed away in November. We went into a house building project, which went badly, badly wrong. Um, and then around April, I was diagnosed with a mystery illness, which is still a little bit of a mystery, but basically left me with long periods of fatigue, nausea, really, really grim uh, three months that I've been sick, but. Um, over the time, I've regained strength, and uh, I'm now a lot, lot better. Um, I'm still going, I'm having some final tests to try and work out what was wrong. Um, the last consultant tells me, I can tell you what, what, what isn't wrong with you. I can't yet tell you what is wrong with you, so, uh, or what has been wrong with you. But I have some final tests, but um, I think pretty much we're through the other, the other side of it, and um, certainly strength-wise, I'm about 90%, which is so, so good. And I just wanted to say on behalf of our family, Caroline, myself, and the kids, Thank you so much for all your prayers, for all those who have given us money, who've helped us with our house, who've uh, invested and sent letters and notes and emails, and it's just been so, so uh, amazing to have so many of you standing with us in this, uh, this season. So thank you. You can applaud yourselves for being an amazing church family. Thank you. Oh, you don't feel comfortable doing that. Okay, you can applaud yourselves a bit louder than that. You've been a great. Thank you so much. Turn to the person next to you and say, aren't I wonderful? Um, <laughs> so, you know, it has, been a, it has been a tough season, and although it's been a tough season, it's been a trial uh, for us, it is not, we are not unique. There are so many. We have all watched in horror this week, haven't we, at the trial going on on those coming out of Syria, um, despair, unlike that which many of us will ever see or know. And uh, just so you know, we're as a church coordinating what we're going to do as a response, because I know so many of us want to want to do something to play our part in one of the one of the greatest disasters we've known. Um, so we'll get more news to you next week. But there there are trials in life, aren't there? There are trials. There is difficulty. You know, um, tough seasons come. Who's who's had a tough season in their life? You've been through a t not a tough day, not a tough week. You've had a tough season in your life. If your hand is not up, either you don't like putting your hand up, I understand that, or you haven't had a tough season, which is, I say, pull out the sofa bed, I am moving in. Uh, I, I like porridge and, and coffee in the mornings, and uh, you can plump up my pillows at night. No, I mean, we all have these tough seasons. Who is in a tough season, a trial right now? You're, you're living it right now. I mean, just look around the room. Numbers of us are living trials right now. And, and there are story after sto story of these trials in our lives. You know, uh, sooner or later we're going to we'll face them. And we've, we're doing this series called Life on the Frontline because it does feel like life is like that, doesn't it? It feels like we're living it on the front line. A, a child whose brother is killed in a car crash, a woman who's diagnosed with breast cancer for the second time, a teenager whose father commits suicide. A father who loses his job and doesn't know how he'll support his family. A boy who's bullied at school. A girl who's struggling with a friendship group. A man whose wife has had an affair with another woman. 
a family whose house floods, and on and on. And you know what? That's not an imaginary list. I know every one of those people. I know every one of those people. We have trials. Some of you are worried. And you're like, oh no, Simon used to make me laugh before he left. Now he's making me depressed. <laughs> he's come back depressed and he's going to depress us all. But do you know what? There is bad news, but there is good news. In the bad news, there is good news in the bad news. And if you're not a Christian today, you come amongst us, not as a people who just feel like Christianity is pie in the sky when we die, but we have realized it is steak on the plate while we wait. There is so much good news in the bad news. We stand and we declare a warrior king who fights alongside us. Yes, it is life on the front line. But we have someone who goes before us and who stands beside us. And we know this is a battle, but we are never, ever alone. We are never alone because he has promised to stand with us. Someone once said, it's not our circumstances that define us. It's our stances. I love that. It's not our circumstances that define it. It's our stances. How do we posture ourselves? How do we stand so that we can not just survive, but thrive on the front line. And, I, and I'm not setting myself up as an expert in trials and suffering. Please hear me. I understand many of you have had trials beyond which I've never seen. But the reality is, as we go through these things, sometimes a verse of Scripture just sticks. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. It's the same verse that comes back again and again. It almost is the verse that defines that season. God speaking through one verse. And, and that has been my experience in James chapter 1. If you have a Bible, you can turn or it will be on the, on the screen. James writes this. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to God's people who are scattered all over the world, greetings. Count it, I like that, greetings. Count it all joy, uh, some translations say, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James is one of the most practical books of the Bible, and that one verse, as I've known for many years, but in this season, it has stood out to me like no other. It was, the book is written by a guy called James. Um, sometimes I'm paid for my hard work. Sometimes it's just for pure brilliance. Um, and that was one of those moments. So it's written by a guy called James. And James, you might think, well, James... Do you have the right to write about suffering like this? Do you have the right to write to anyone about this? He's writing to the church scattered across the world. Do you have the right, James, to write like this? Well, well think for a moment. Judge for yourself. James was the half-brother of Jesus. Has anyone here got a brother who thinks he's God? <laughs> a few people. I'll let you sort that out in your family later. The thing is, James did have a brother who thought he was God, and James did not believe him until his brother rose from the dead and appeared in front of him. And James had a very, very sudden change of mind. It's one of the things that authenticates the story for me. Whose brother who claims that they're God ever believes them? No one. James did. 
James changed his mind and he became a leader in the church that he'd once despised and became a proclaimer that Jesus was the Son of God and he was God and he rose from the dead for your behalf. And then he took and led the church as one of the early leaders who led the church into so much suffering. His good friend James had his head chopped off with a sword. His good friend Stephen was stoned to death. And then the church was scattered through massive, massive persecution that led many of them bleeding, dying, having lost everything as they fled Jerusalem to the four winds of the earth to find refuge. James has got something to say about suffering. (laughs) And so when he writes to the church and says, hey guys, greetings, let's talk about suffering. James has got something to say about trials and suffering. And you have to admit though, James starts in a really annoying way. Do you ever read the Bible and get annoyed by it? Oh, don't go all religious on me. You do, don't you? Or you're you're reading it with some pious kind of voice. Consider it pure joy, my brothers. No, don't read the Bible like that. The Bible is meant to make you angry and meant to make you cry and meant to make you laugh and meant to make you outraged and meant to make you shocked. Don't read it in this passive way. Read it like it was meant to be read. And James is writing to these guys and saying, consider it joy. And they would have been shocked because what's James trying to do? He's trying to make them think. He's trying to make them think. That's what consider is, isn't it? It's a thinking word. Count it all joy. Consider it. It's a thinking word. The Bible does a lot of things when we read it, but one thing it must do is make us think. It must make us think about the important things. What's he saying? He's saying heavenly joy comes from heavenly thinking. He's saying, guys, there is an offer of joy right now that's available for you if you will consider, if you will think about these things differently. I realized very early on in this whole thing that we went through that God was after my thinking. (laughs) I had this dream, and in the dream, I was holding a shower head, and I'd been praying for months God, I, I, I want more of the flow of your spirit through my life. I want your power more on my life. I don't want to stay where I am. I want to go to a new level. And in the dream, I was holding a shower head, and the shower head was blocked. There was nothing coming out of it, very little coming out of it. And I took the back off the, the, the shower head, and in the back of the shower, in the head, was a teenager's hair. This didn't really happen, it was a dream. But it was notable because where does the hair go in the shower? It goes down the the drain, not in the shower head. And as I pulled the hair out of the shower head and put the the shower back together, suddenly the shower was powerful, the flow was flowing, and it was as it was meant to be. And I woke up and I knew immediately what it meant. Because when I was a teenager, what, I, what you realize in that state is that one day you think, you know what, I'm an adult. I think like an adult. I've got mature thoughts. I've arrived. And the next day, oh, can I play with my Lego? You, you, you mix, I still do that. So you, you mix between adult, mature thinking and, te- and childish thinking. When you're a teenager, you're in this state of fl- flixing, flicking between one set of thoughts to another set of thoughts. And God was saying to me, Simon, some of your thinking is mature. And some of your thinking is immature, 
And if you will sort it out, the flow of my life will go through you like never before. This is all about thinking. I needed to think more deeply, but I was struggling to think more deeply than I had thought before. I'm in the midst of this. I've got no energy. I couldn't even read at certain points, but I had a lot of time to think. I needed to think more deeply. I remember, I remember going on a walk one time, and, and I, it was one of these prepared walks. Someone had written it down. They'd given us a map and done description. And, and I remember reading the description, and it said, um, light and pleasant trails for a nice afternoon's walk, or something like that. Well, I don't know if you've ever been on a walk like that and got halfway around and thought, who wrote this thing? <laughs> Has anyone ever had that experience? You think this guy must be some kind of SAS commando or something. Light and pleasant trails for an afternoon walk. And I, as we were trudging across this farmer's field, deep, almost thigh deep in mud, and I lifted my foot and my boots stayed behind. Anyone had that experience? It was miserable. I thought, this is not a light and pleasant trail. And behind me was mud, and in front of me was mud. It was like something out of the Somme. It was just like this wall-to-wall mud. And life sometimes is like that. Life sometimes is like that. You think, how did I get on this path? How did I get in the middle? I can't go back. I can't, I'm not sure. I don't want to go forward. How did I get here? What we have to realize, we've got to learn to bring the mind of Christ, the thinking of Christ, into the mud of life. If you can win the battle in the mind, you'll win the battle in the mud. If you can win the battle in the mind, you will win the battle in the mud. Because we all walk through fields like that in life, where it is just muddy. And it feels like life is a trudge through an uphill farmer's field. It is just muddy. But if you can win the battle in the mind, you can win the battle in the mud. Free, freedom flows from the inside out. And James says, consider it joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Notice that. Not if. <laughs> not if. Not if you happen to come across a trial, consider it joy. No, no, no. He's saying, when you meet trials of various kinds, consider it pure joy. And you know what? I realized in this season that some of my thinking had been deep enough. Because when I was a teenager, when I was in my 20s, when things would go in my, wrong in my life, what was the first thing I would think? Why me? <laughs> Why me? Why would this happen to me? Why should I have this happening to me? Why, God, would you let this happen to me? That was almost without fail my default thought pattern. Led me to depression, anger with God, all sorts of stuff. Do you know what? In the last year, I can honestly say I have not once thought, why me? I've not once thought, why me? Now, that's not because I'm so holy and wonderful. But, well, that's not because of those reasons. I'll let you be the judge of that. That's not because of those reasons. The reason is this. I'd begun to think deeply. And I thought deeply enough to realize I'm born into a war. This is a battlefield. Uh, uh, it would be like to say why me would be like me landing on the beaches of Normandy and crawling up bullets flying to the soldier next to me and saying why and he's saying why what you know pew, pew, the bullets are flying why what why and I'd be saying why me and he said why me what why are they shooting at me and he'd be like what do you mean and I said well I, I, I wanted a trip to France and there was a free ticket so I got on the boat <laughs> I didn't realize this was what I was signing up for. Why me makes no sense in that context. It's the same for the Christian. 
why me? If you're thinking, why me in the trial? Think deeper. Because there is joy available, but it's not available at a level of why me? Think deeper than why me? Because we have been born on a battlefield. There is a war going on. But our King Jesus has won the war. And he is pushing the enemy back. He is pushing the enemy back. When I realized that I thought deeply to that level, I soon realized, though, that I had not thought deeply enough because I wasn't at the place where I could consider it joy. I wasn't at the place where I could consider it joy. And you might think, well, how does thinking that you're on a battlefield and realizing that life is a war, that there is an enemy that is resistance, how does that help you get happy? How does that give you any sense of joy? Well, look at Jesus. Hebrews 12. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How did Jesus think himself happy in a war zone? How did he think himself happy facing the cross? He thought himself to a place of joy because he borrowed from future joy. He saw the billions whose lives would have been transformed, who will be rescued from death, disease, and destruction. He saw a planet transformed, remade into the image that that his father designed in the first place. He looked to that place, and some people say, I'll be glad when this is over. And Jesus said, I'll be glad right now. I will borrow from future joy for today. Recognizing that you're in a war only makes you happy when you realize there's an outcome. There's a victory ahead. And that victory, you know, soldiers in the Second World War, very often you'd hear of their thoughts in the, tre- in the trenches, their thoughts on the battlefield. Their thoughts were very often of what? The end of the war. We'll drink in Paris. We'll drink in Berlin. We'll, we'll, I'll see my wife, my girlfriend, my family again. Their thoughts were of joy were borrowed from future into the present. I'll be happy when this is over. No, no, as believers we can say, I'm going to be happy now. <laughs> because our victory is secure. I'm going to borrow from future joy. I'm banking on future joy. I'm going to have it right now. You're not alone in the war zone. So that's the first level of thinking. If you can think like this, you can win the battle of the mind. And if you can win the battle in the mind, you can win the battle in the mud. The two go together. But but James goes on, he says, "For for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You know, when we see the word test, what do we think? Exam. Anyone like exams? Don't answer that. When we see the word test, we think exam, and exam equals pass or fail. So many see the Christian life, and even the trials of the Christian life, as God's exam. I'm going to pass, or I'm going to fail. But you know what? That's not what James is saying. He's not saying the trials of life are set up by God to pass or fail you. And if you fail, you know, I must have been failing all year because it's been going on for a year. If you fail, you'll just get another one. He's not saying that at all. We can look at what Peter writes about the same thing to understand their context of the day. He writes this 
Be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than gold. The word testing in their context was not exam, pass or fail. It was gold that is being purified. It is gold being purified. When you think about trials, don't think exams, don't think pass or fail. Why? Because if you think to that level, you'll think of God as the great examiner in the sky who's just out to fail you for another... I mean, how fun is that? No. But if you think of it as gold, and your Creator, Heavenly Father, will use the path that you're on, the trials that come, to purify you like gold. He's so good, he can win with a pair of twos. That's how he brings glory out of the grit. That's how he brings a message out of the mud. Because he purifies us like gold in those seasons. I love that picture. Why does gold need to be tested? When gold is tested, what happens in the fire is that the impurities come out. What comes out is a better gold. What comes out is a purer gold. What comes out is a gold that has greater value. And that's what happens to us. As I began to think more deeply about trials, I realized there's something that's going on in me in this season. I can't change what's happening around me, but I can change what's happening inside of me. I can let God do what he wants to do in this stuff. To win the battle of the mind so that I can win the battle in the mud, I have to start seeing trials as upgrades. I have to start seeing trials as upgrades. Graham Cook, a preacher from the States, so helped me with this as I began to see and realize that trials are not meant to take something from us. They're meant to give something to us. And in the trial, we can start saying, Father, this is rough and I hate it, and you know that, but I'm looking for an upgrade. <laughs> I'm looking for an upgrade. Who loves, up, who loves upgrades? I love upgrades. I love upgrades. I, you know what? I get emails from my mobile phone company every day of the year, pretty much. I ignore them all apart from one. And the one that comes and it says, you are eligible for an upgrade. Who loves that email? Oh, it's just me. All right, well, I love that email. And I, I, things have changed in me over the last three months, but one thing has not changed, my love of gadgets. And so when I get that email, you know, the grass is greener, the birds sing sweeter. It's a different day. Why? Because I've got an upgrade. But for you, it might be an upgraded hairdo or an update, upgraded pair of shoes or an upgraded car or whatever it might be. We love upgrades. You, sir, me, me, sir, yes, you, sir, you have been upgraded on this flight. No, I haven't. You have. It's your lucky day. This has never happened to me, actually. I'm a little bit bitter about it. But that, that reality is we love an upgrade. And God is saying this, that if you think deeply enough about trials, you will see that I'll use every trial, trial to upgrade you. Receive the upgrades from heaven in your trial. You know, I took Caleb for his jabs one time. He screamed blue murder. I looked at his face and he looked back at me and said, you betrayed me. <laughs> he didn't say that, but his eyes said that. Why did I do it? Because his body 
got an upgrade. It was painful, but he has now not got a disease that he could well have got and that could well have killed him. He got an upgrade. It was painful for a moment, but he got an upgrade. He was better forever because of it. It's the same for us. When you see the trials of life through the the hands of your loving Father, you realize he's not going to send anything. He's not going to allow anything that he is not going to turn to glory in your life. He will do it if you'll let him. How can you bring the mind of Christ into the mud of your trial? How can you win the battle in your mind? You can start to see the trial through the lens of upgrade. And, and lastly, what kind of upgrades? James finishes this little verse with this. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There are loads of upgrades available, not just for you, but for the people around you. Don't think just individualistically, because you know what what we've realized, it was amazing as people came and served us and helped build our house while I was not able to. We would say, thank you so much. And they would say, no, 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 we want to thank you for letting us help you. We've so enjoyed it. People were thanking us for letting them do a hard day's work. It's bizarre, but what's happening is God is upgrading everyone around you through your trial. Something is built of community. He is so good. He can do it in so many lives. But James wants to highlight one particular upgrade. He says this, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. How many prayed this morning, God, give me steadfastness? I want to get something from, from Sunday, and I want to get patience and steadfastness. No one prays that. But you know what? It's one of the greatest things that we need. That word, we don't even, it's not even translated into a word that we often use. Steadfastness means patient, hopeful endurance. Patient, hopeful endurance. And very quickly, we realized, Carol and I, that we were in a season where God was upgrading our patience. We saw a heron in our back garden, and then a friend saw a heron, and then we were coming out of the hospital, and spray-painted on the wall opposite was a heron. And we knew God is speaking to us through the heron, but we didn't know what he was saying. So we talked to a friend, and he said, well, do what the Bible says. Do what Jesus said. Consider the birds. So we're like, oh, yeah, consider the birds. That doesn't help us. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> What's a heron about? And then we, looked, we began to study. Caroline looked up, what does a heron mean? Well, herons are known for what? Their patience. They will stand by a pond all day waiting for a moment to eat your fish. They're quite happy to stand there. They don't mind the wait because they know patiently and joyfully that they're about to be full in their bellies. Herons are known for their patient, hopeful endurance. And God was saying, I'm building that in you. But you know what? I mean, I'm not known for my patience. I mean, to me, there's two classes of things. There's things that need to be done today, and there's things that should have been done yesterday. That's all that exists in my mind. That's how I see the world And yet, James says this, your testing of your faith produces produces steadfastness, patience, and let patience have its full effect that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. There is a level of maturity available for us that only is available through the door of patience. I am sorry to be the bearer of bad news. Because who wants it? But it's the truth. And James saying, there's upgrades for you. 
in the world of patience. Patience is God's furnace for the soul. He uses it to flush out the impurities and refine us like pure gold. He teaches us through the lessons of patience. You look at it again and again, you start to see this word that no one ever does a Bible study on because no one wants it. But what does it say? Love is patience. <laughs> over and over and over again. It's, it describes a, a mankind that God is creating, a new man that has a steadfast, hopeful endurance. And he uses that to bring them to a place of maturity. I did a simple thing that helped me. I removed the word frustration from my vocabulary. I can tell you what, lying in your bed while other people are working, you want to be out there doing something and you just feel exhausted is the most, oh, I can't use that word. <laughs> it is the most, I can't use that word. Over and over and over again, I could have used the word frustration. There's been frustrations, I'm not meant to use it, but there have been frustrations and frustrations. But removing that one word, I realized frustration is like a crossroads of the soul. You can either choose the path of patience or you can choose the road of resistance. <laughs> and I'd been choosing the road of resistance all my life and I began to stop at the crossroads and say, I want to choose the path of patience. I mean, one, one example was insomnia. I mean, I've had insomnia on and off all my life probably, but it hit in, I mean, it was just like a bulldozer load of insomnia during this season. And in the middle of the night, I tell you what, it is the most frustrating thing when you are so tired. But of course, I couldn't use that word. I had to learn to think differently about this trial. I didn't know how long it was going to go on. I had to learn to think differently. Here's, here's what I wrote in my journal one night. How do I bring the mind of Christ into the mud of insomnia? Here's ten ways. I could think through the lens of creation. Thank you, God, for creating sleep. I love sleep. I love that you have created it as a gift for us. I could think from the, the lens of history. Thank you, God, that it is not like this every night. And I have actually slept well before. I could think through the lens of the future. Thank you, God, that it is not going to be like this forever. I could look through, through the lens of eternity. Thank you, God, that there is perfect sleep and rest in heaven. I could think through the lens of deliverance. Thank you, God, that you are going to deliver me from this because you are a savior and I'm not living with this for the rest of my life. I could think through the lens of promise. Thank you, God, that you promise sleep to those that you love and you love me, so you've promised sleep to me. I could think through the lens of presence. Thank you, God, that you are with me. And in my grumpiness and tiredness, you are still with me, even though nobody else wants to be. I could think through the lens of trial. Thank you, God, that I consider this all joy because it's developing endurance and character in me, which is far more important than a night's sleep. I could think through the lens of upgrade. Thank you, God, there is an upgrade in this for me. The enemy has a plan to take me out for exhaustion, but you have a bigger plan for my glory. I could think through the lens of hope. I look forward to a wonderful long night's sleep where I wake up fully refreshed and energized. I can think frustration or I could think any one of those other things. It's time to think differently. It's time to bring the mind of Christ into the mud of life so that we can win the battle. Because when we win the battle in the mind, we win the battle in the mud. How do you need to bring the mind of Christ into your circumstance? Sickness, job loss, family friction, whatever it is. What will the Lord use to upgrade you? What upgrades does the Father has for you and those around you? 
You know, John Wesley, let me land with this. John Wesley, one of the greatest preachers who ever lived on the planet, saw millions saved, was once backslidden, lost, abandoned kind of really his faith from his childhood. While he was at university in Oxford, he uh, just one night, and I'll read you the story, one chilly night, as John entered the main door of the college, he struck up a conversation with the college porter. The porter had on only a light coat and should stood shivering by the door. John encouraged him to go and put a warmer coat on and drink some hot tea. But the porter responded that he was wearing the only coat he owned and all he had to drink each day was cold water. And even though he was sh shivering, he added that he thanked God for the coat he did have and the water he had to drink, as well as for the dry stone floor he would sleep on that night. John was shocked by the porter's reply and he said, you thank God when you've got nothing to wear, nothing to eat, and no bed to lie on. What else do you thank him for? The porter looked directly in his eye and said, I thank him that he's given me life and being, that he's given me a heart to love him, and that he's given me a desire to serve him. As John lay in his bed that night, he thought about what the porter had said, and he asked himself some questions. Why don't I feel the same love for God? How is the porter able to carry on with such a grateful attitude, even though he has got few material comforts? It was this encounter that began to change John Wesley's life. The porter had won the battle in his mind. We don't know the outcome of his battle in the mud, but he had won the battle in his mind. And what happens? He began to change the world around. A simple answer of gratitude instead of what he could have come out of his mouth changed the life of a man who went on to change millions we win the battle in the mind, we'll win the battle in the mud, and we start to change the world around us. This is what God is calling us to.